I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number 15. And we're currently recording in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, it's the snowpocalypse, snowmageddon. We are enduring the bomb cyclone, bombogenesis, um, hurricane force winds, snow falling at upwards of uh, two to four inches an hour or more in some parts here of uh, lower and coastal New England. It's a doozy. Mm-hmm. So if you hear some wind or our windows rattling in the background, that's what's happening. Yeah, a good old nor'easter. Yeah. So what better opportunity to sit down and record a podcast? The only thing more New England would be us recording this in one of the only open Dunkin' Donuts around, which I'm sure there's one somewhere. I wasn't sure where you were going with that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Norista. It's a, it's a gosh dang Norista. Do you think Dunkin' Donuts will sponsor us? If we were to record this in a Dunks right now, yeah, they probably would. We'd at least like maybe get some free coffee. I would do it. That would be so worth it. <laughs> I'll and... take this beer I'm drinking right now, though. Anyways, so today we're talking about a recently discovered virus called skunk adenovirus 1. And it's called skunk adenovirus because it was first discovered in a skunk in Canada back in 2014. But as you'll learn in this episode, it doesn't just infect skunks. And so right now, at the time that we're recording this, in January 2022, there have been recently a bunch of news stories published um, in the last couple of weeks about this virus actually causing some mortality in a number of porcupines in Maine. And the story was even picked up by the Associated Press, it went out to various news outlets all around the Northeast. And so it's always interesting when you see a wildlife disease story make it into mainstream news. So we figured, hey, we have to investigate this. And so what better way to do that than to actually go straight to the source? And so today we're going to be talking to the pathologist who was actually behind these cases that were reported in the news. Um, it was actually the one to make that diagnosis of skunk adenovirus. So that's pretty cool. So today we're going to be speaking with Dr. David Needle. And Dr. Needle is the Senior Veterinary Pathologist and Pathology Section Chief at the New Hampshire Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. And Dr. Needle also has a particular interest in wildlife disease, especially emerging and zoonotic diseases, as well as comparative microbial ecology. Also, as an interesting side note, Dr. Needle and I were at Tufts Vet School together. He actually graduated the year before me, so we go way back. Yeah, so we thought that this topic was worthy of a full episode because this virus seems like it could be a new and emerging threat to wildlife health and not just a one-off thing. And the key aspect that uh, points towards this is something called inclusions. And I was totally naive to what the heck an inclusion was, and I had to sort of look that term up, although that was familiar to you as a veterinarian. Um, and so an inclusion, in this instance, are aggregates of virus particles or virus-induced proteins or other structures formed as a result of viral infection. 
Inclusions typically occur in the cytoplasm or nucleus of a cell. In Dr. Needle's work, inclusions respond to staining and become quite visible under the microscope. And this was important because due to the fact that these inclusions were so large and so clear, it's almost certain that uh, Dr. Needle and other pathologists would have seen these inclusions um, in these species that we're going to talk about today uh, over the past decades. Yeah, so basically these viral inclusions are so big and so easy to see under the microscope, um, Dr. Needle suspects that if they had been there all along, they would have seen it, you know, before 2014. So we really do think that this is potentially a new virus that's emerging and not something that's been out there and we just didn't see it. Right. And this is where we want to be, the front lines of wildlife health. Yep, that's right. Got our finger on the pulse of wildlife health. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and it takes folks like uh, Dr. Needle uh, to, to do this, um, you know, really out there just uh, working so hard, exploring all these, you know, different, um, different corners of, of wildlife health and, and more so in his case, mortality. Um, and it's, it's, it was so fun to, to hear this interview that you had with him. And it's been great to kind of communicate with him and um, he does such cool work that we're going to go up and do a live episode in the lab with uh, Dr. Needle and, and get to see his work and uh, glove up and probably jump in on some carcasses with him and see what sort of fun we get up to. Yeah, I'm so excited. I can't wait. It's going to be it's going to be a blast. And I can't wait to uh, yeah record that one and share it out with all of you. Yeah, you'll get to hear Michelle elbows deep in a carcass, which is one of your favorite things. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. So let's uh, kick it to the interview with Dr. Needle. Uh, I'm David Needle. I'm a veterinary pathologist, anatomic pathologist at New Hampshire Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. And I'm a clinical associate professor um, in the College of Life Sciences and Agriculture uh, at University of New Hampshire. Uh, aside from diagnostic pathology uh, on domesticated animals, I have a burgeoning research uh, program on uh, microbial ecology and wildlife disease ecology. This is the story of how Dr. Needle became the first person to diagnose skunk adenovirus 1 in the U.S. But he didn't diagnose it in a skunk. He diagnosed it in a hedgehog. Buckle up, this is a wild and fast-moving story. So from what I was reading, this is a virus that was first detected, I think, in 2015 up in Canada, but you were actually the first person that confirmed and detected it in the U.S., so fill us in on that little background. Sure, so you're right, yeah, in, in 2015 paper described a skunk with hepatitis, so like inflammation and necrosis in its liver, um, from Ontario, that was from 2014. The paper came in 2015, um, and then like a year after the paper came out, <clears throat> I had a hedgehog submitted from a, a hedgehog colony, a breeding colony, also known as either a prickle or an array, like an array of vectors. It's like the most nerdy uh, thing ever because all the points are going in different directions, um, <clears throat> and uh, that hedgehog uh, farm essentially had uh, introduced some new animals. And so a bunch of the 
established animals in the colony got sick and none of the new animals got sick. And uh, three of the animals died, eight of the 30 something animals developed respiratory disease and I got the carcass of one of the animals or actually tissues fixed in formaldehyde. Um, the submitting veterinarian uh, is a really great veterinarian um, and uh, always on top of stuff, um, Ellen Tighe from Plymouth Animal Hospital. And so she sent the tissues in and uh, it was funny, sort of like <clears throat> um, a good come up in story. Uh, the histopathology showed a really cool uh, inflammatory lesion in the airways in the lungs, so bronchopneumonia, and there were inclusions that looked like viral inclusions, and they really looked like herpes virus inclusions. Hedgehogs didn't really have a lot of described viral diseases, um, and so I got all excited and uh, actually shipped this little little bits of this fixed hedgehog all around the world. Um, I sent some to a collaborator in Switzerland who did uh, degenerate herpes virus PCR, and it was negative, and I was like, oh man. Um, but I also sent a piece to uh, Martin Selig, who uh, runs the electron microscopy laboratory at Mass General Hospital. So this is like legitimately the fanciest hedgehog ever. It went to, you know, one of the greatest research hospitals in America and to Bern, Switzerland, to the, their like veterinary center. Um, little pieces of a dead hedgehog, I should say. Um, and so on EM, we found viral particles and they were icosahedral consistent with herpes virus or adenovirus. And so I sent some more tissue to Patty Pesavento, Patricia Pesavento, who is um, just a really fantastic veterinary pathologist and virologist at UC Davis, who works also um, <clears throat> sort of like similarly way, way. I mean, I'm like a tiny distilled little sad version of what she has built um, at the wildlife <laughs> uh, human interface. Um, she's a, a like a, a pillar of uh, veterinary diagnostics and virology research. Anyway, so I sent it to her and they found uh, using degenerate adenovirus PCR. So degenerate PCRs are like specific to a segment of the genome that is conserved throughout the um, you know, group of viruses, but also um, varies enough that you can sequence what you get out of the PCR and find out if you have something that's been described before or not. And so she sequenced it and like literally it took a, this took a while, um, you know, ping ponging this little bits all over the world. Um, and just as uh, we she figured out what it was, a paper came out from Japan detailing a hedgehog that had that had been under veterinary care for uh, hedgehogs get uh, heart disease similar to cats, a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And so this hedgehog had been under veterinary care with a cardiologist in Japan and it died and they did a postmortem. And incidentally, they found a couple inclusions in the trachea. And so they found the same virus, skunk adenovirus one. So theirs is the second paper. And then ours is the third, sort of happened concurrently. I was just slow um, as I want to be. And uh, um, so then, after we had that head, so ours was the first case in, in the United States, sort of contiguous-ish with Ontario. So now, at this point in the story, skunk adenovirus had been diagnosed in a skunk in Canada, and now in a couple hedgehogs in the U.S. and Japan. But the virus didn't stop there. And then, not very long after that, I got a gray fox submitted um, for necropsy, a free-ranging gray fox that was behaviorally inappropriate from New Hampshire. And the fox had canine distemper virus, um, which is something we were working on and have continued to um, in Northern New England. And it also had 
listeria monocytogenes, right? So listeria of the reportable veterinary and human disease that, you know, is the reason that pregnant women shouldn't eat raw milk, et cetera. One of the reasons. And uh, it also had skunk identifiers, one, same bronchopneumonia. So now it had initially described in uh, Mephididae, a skunk. Skunks are no longer mustelids which I was disappointed to learn because I had to relearn a new word or learn a new word. Yeah, so I was actually, mephitidae. I was thinking about this morning. I was like, what even, what even are skunks now? <laughs> so they're, they're mephitidae. They're their own thing. Um, Cause they're too stinky to be mustelids, I guess. Too musty. Okay. A quick reminder that the mustelid family includes otters, badgers, ferrets, weasels, fishers, and wolverines among others. Um, so it's been a mephitidae and then an insectivore right and now a canid um and at the same time um uh brian stevens is a veterinary pathologist who works for the canadian wildlife health cooperative for ontario and none of it and his friend uh and resident mate is uh laura bork who is the canadian wildlife health cooperative veterinary pathologist for the maritime provinces um in canada and so Brian knew about the skunk adenovirus because he actually worked at the New Hampshire Veterinary Diagnostic Lab before he went back to Guelph. Um, and he said, hey, uh, Laura has skunk adenovirus and some, uh, some porcupines. And so Laura was working up this big series um, of skunk adenovirus and porcupines in the maritime provinces. Um, it's also uh, had been, the adenovirus had been identified in uh, pygmy marmosets as well and given a different called pygmy marmoset adenovirus turns out they're the same virus so um this is a long story so uh i'm like so i'm, I'm this, like riveted right now this is crazy this is so a crazy story. This is all happening and yeah. keep in mind it's all within like four years three years um and it's a virus that had never been seen before and, and as uh has been noted in some of the news publications um the inclusions are gigantic. And uh, if you couldn't see them, you'd have to give back your driver's license because you're not fit to be on the road. I mean, they're like anyone who saw these, like this is emerging, I'm pretty convinced because you'd have to be blind not to see them on the microscope. Uh, so Laura had a big case of them and hers were interestingly sort of associated with a, a rehabilitation clinic where there was sort of getting that, getting it there. Um, so far, all my animals had been sort of well, the, the fox had been wild. And so in, in, since that time, I've diagnosed it in, I think, five or six porcupines, um, all from Maine. Although I, I have some reports recently from some New Hampshire fishing game biologists. They think they've seen it in uh, north of the notch as well in New Hampshire. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was in a fox. So that's a rodent, right? So now we have mephitidae, insectivore, uh, canid, and rodent. Um, so we're climbing all around the, the mammal tree here. After uh, we published our paper, uh, Sarah Child Sanford, who is the clinical veterinarian at the one of the clinical veterinarians at the wildlife uh, hospital at Cornell, uh, published a paper on two porcupines that she kept alive and recovered, but found the virus as well in uh, nasal swabs. And so they've had a couple more die and she submitted some. Um, and so uh, Mason Jager uh, is a pathologist who's doing his PhD at Cornell and Shotaro Nakagun. He's a really, really smart uh, resident and very nice. Um, and so they contacted me because they had a couple and they knew that I was working on it. Um, uh, my assumption is Kristen Schuler, who runs the wildlife uh, health program, uh, wildlife disease program at, at Cornell, um, probably hooked us up. She's just the best and one of the most 
like smart and organized and like generous collaborators. Uh, anyway, so they contacted me and I knew Laura was working on this big series. And so we plopped together. Um, and so we have a paper that was accepted in the Journal of Wildlife Diseases where Laura is the first author. Um, and I believe Claire Jardin, who runs her node of the Canadian Wildlife Health uh, Cooperative is the, uh, is the final author. Um, but it also includes raccoons, which is in another species. So here we have procyonids, right? So now we're just all, it's, it's, it's all bets are off. So um, if you want, I can just keep talking. I could do this whole thing. Like <laughs> I have like an infinite run. Um, just interrupt me. You're drinking my coffee. Like this is, this is so fascinating. So just to keep track of what species this virus has been found in so far, we're talking about skunks, hedgehogs, gray fox, raccoons, porcupines, and marmosets. So they're in the fun history. So adenoviruses derive their name from the human adenoids, which are those not tonsil thingies in the back of the throat um, oh. slash nasopharynx. And in the 50s, they had cultures of adenoid mucosa um, for scientific research. And they noticed some of the cultures were degenerating, not dying, but degenerating. And so it was the 50s and like, you know, scientific technology has exploded every five years since then. So they were able to, they took like the supernatin off of the cultures and they filtered it through the smallest filter they could. And it's then they put that supernatin in with another clean culture and it caused the degeneration. So they knew they had a non-filterable agent. And so that was a virus. That's, you know, basically how you knew it, it was a virus back in the day. And so they called it adenovirus for adenoids. So that's where the name came from. It's kind of oh, fun. Yeah, that is a fun um, fact. And uh, so adenoviruses are gigantic DNA viruses, huge. Um, and they can have, you can have trouble culturing them sometimes because they might not survive freezing. They're that big, um, which is pretty unique. Um, so uh, we have, you and I probably have a couple handfuls of adenovirus on board at all times. The sort of prevailing dogma is that adenoviruses are really host adapted and generally not associated with disease. The classical ones in veterinary medicine are the adenoviruses that kill Arabian horses that are born with severe combined immune deficiency. Um, and then there's others, of course, there's some crazy ones that cause uh, that hemorrhagic disease in deer. Uh, there's two different ones, the mule deer and the um, out west. Um, but generally they're sort of thought to be like a host, right? One host and they might cause disease, it might be host adapted. So I don't know if that's 100% uh, true. Uh, but either way, I think we've all learned from recent history that um, at a point when a virus mutates and gains the capacity to infect a new species, it can have sort of widespread uh, disease impacts and then theoretically could or should, if it's not generally a very highly, you know, pathogenic virus, adapt and chill. Um, so like, you know, there's a beta coronavirus that came from some bats in Wuhan. I'm not sure if you heard about it. And it's spread a little bit. Um, it's yeah, I think I read a little people. something about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It infected some, you know, tigers and zoos and my kids recently. Ah. Um, but so that's another example. So this is the same things, uh, obviously much smaller scale and not zoonotic yet. Um, I don't think I, if it were, it probably would be because it was within porcupines and rehab clinics and they're sneezing and snotty. So if it was zoonotic, it would have been. Um, <clears throat> So this is a moment of likely, you know, recent mutation, and now it has the capacity to infect more animals um, and it's pathogenic. So uh, it's interesting 
risk risks of worth considering for the general public would be if it can affect a fox, it can affect the dog, right? Maybe if it can affect the porcupine, it can affect the bunny or a guinea pig, maybe. I don't know. No one's done infection studies. Um, so very recently, I think I've diagnosed it in five porcupines or four porcupines um, in Maine. Uh, like within the last few months, they sent samples and we got it confirmed. Um, were those all so, coming for, through rehab or were some of those wild? So they're, they're all wild. So far, the ones that I have diagnosed have not, not contracted the virus in captivity that we know of or in rehabilitation. They've all been sick in the wild. Um, that as a, at least according to like how it's been perceived by the rehabilitators. Um, but definitely like the first few were snotty and died, you know, like within a day of getting to the facility. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's evidence that there's strain differentiation. Um, and there were some that died in, in Cornell and some that have survived, you know, um, there are wild and then there are uh, cap captive slash rehab, uh, acquired cases. Um, there is some evidence of, of strain different differentiation mutation going on in the virus. So um, gonna start a project with Maine inland fisheries and wildlife um, to screen animals uh, for the virus. Um, and we're going to do it sort of on two fronts. Since we know it can affect foxes, um, we're going to work with uh, the the annual licensed harvest um and then we'll work with rehabilitators and like we'll you know kind of spread it out a little bit and look for not porcupine you know we'll look to see who it's getting try to be as broad as possible um yeah so i think that's that's my story yeah wow okay okay so this is all super cool do we know so uh, so we call it skunk adenovirus one because it was first found in a skunk but do we have any evidence or any information on where we think it started like do you think it actually started in skunks or they just happen to be the first one we found it in so it's a first animal right um that was found in was a skunk uh it's phylogenetically related to bats and dogs uh bat and dog adenovirus um, which is not uncommon because those are two that are uh more apt to be multi-species infective uh, relative to others. Um, but no, we don't know the primary host and, you know, for whatever it's worth, that's a lot of porcupines getting it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not a lot of other animals. On the flip side, uh, porcupines are adorable, little goofy waddling bear prickly things that don't hide very well and walk slowly and, you know, fox. I mean, I actually, I see a ton of fox all the time out where I live. Um, but uh, I <clears throat> think potentially more porcupines go through rehabbers than fox. So uh, yeah. it's hard to filter through that bias, but it seems to be a lot of porcupines infected. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, there's a bunch of other things porcupines get. Like I remember a couple of years ago, I think, and this might've been your work or you were on a publication, there's some nasty fungal diseases that we found in porcupines yeah that's mine yeah. too yeah uh <laughs> right so that's pretty cool because so that's uh of course i think it's cool um i wrote it uh and i like it enough to write it up uh so uh that's actually kind of a neat one that's uh ringworm fungus so it's the same fungus trichophyton mentagrophytes that infects dogs cats cows sometimes people um and so 
uh, yeah, these were free ranging animals that came in. And, and what's what's kind of goofy and cool about that uh, disease is uh, in every other animal that is not immunosuppressed, ringworm is a ring shaped circle that everyone thought was a worm way back in the day. So they called it ringworm, but it's actually fungus, right? And the reason it's a ring shaped lesion is that the body walls it off um, and try to, to trap it. And that's what the body does with things that can't like that are too big to be digested by white blood cells one-on-one. -on -one. They take macrophages and they make a wallet off the granuloma, right? So, um, and you or me or a cat or a dog or a cow, you get a ring-shaped lesion and the crusty scale, yucky, right? And self-limiting essentially, or it'll stay there and it's itchy, but it won't cover your whole body, it gets contained. Porcupines have like no inflammatory reaction at all, zero. And so, I'm going to anthropomorphize the skin of the porcupine now. So stay with me. The skin's like, ah, there's a fungus here and I can't get rid of it because my immune cells aren't reacting. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll just push it off with a bunch of keratin. Keratin being the, you know, the top of your skin and what makes your hair. But dermatophytes are keratinophilic. In fact, they eat keratin and keratin is their substrate. So they grow in and live in keratin. So the porcupine tries to slough the fungus by growing more keratin. And then the, the fungus just grows into all the keratin and it just spreads and it covers their entire body. And they actually died of it. Um, and I don't uh, practice clinical medicine. I'm a diagnostician. And, you know, so when my sister calls and her friend's dogs have problems, I'm far enough out of vet school that I'm beginning to get uncomfortable. <laughs> um, being like, I don't know. Back in the dark ages, we, um, but I made like, this is the one time where it's like, why don't you try this different medication? And it worked um it was cool and so now there's a theoretical protocol that's published in that paper um for helping saving saving those porcupines and, and to release um to the wild but i just really mostly refer people to talk to maureen murray the uh wildlife center veterinarian at, at tufts because she's great and she's done it the most um so yeah the that's an interesting little story if you look at sort of what's going on with wildlife in general, fungus and climate change are hand in hand causing very bad things. So I think there's probably something at play there. Mm. Yeah. And I've seen a, a bunch of porcupines um, in rehab, like with mange and things like that. Yeah. So they just yeah. strike me as a species that kind of gets a lot of stuff. And I don't know if that's something about them or their immune system or environmental or behavioral, like you were talking about, but yeah, they yeah. just seem like they have, they have a rough time. Like a lot of them come in with, you know, with these fungal or, you know, skin issues and they just are looking really rough. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them, right? So um, I think that's part of it uh, that we see it. We see them because there's a lot of them, They're little land rodents, uh, but yeah, no, they are. I would like to, at some point in the future when find the time there's a cool immunologist at UNH named Shireen Elsawa who does really cool like sort of specific uh neoplasia immunology stuff but she's just really brilliant and and widely fun uh, to talk about science and at some point we'll uh maybe write a grant to try to characterize the immune system of the porcupine because I agree I have some I have some porcupine mystery skin cases that uh I've been chasing around for a couple of years I can't find an answer to uh so I agree there they're one of my favorites. Uh, I should plug, if we're going to talk porcupines, um, there's a book called The North American Porcupine, the second edition. It's written by Aldous Rose, who is a super duper awesome scientist who 
uh, is Professor Emeritus at Queen, of Queens College in New York. Um, and you should just read the book because it's like just wonderful. It's a mix of science and narrative. Um, it's like a love letter to porcupines. So <laughs> in a nutshell, his family had a camp, uh, you know, in the Catskills, uh, his uh, wife and, and children, child or children, I can't remember. Um, and uh, so he met porcupines there and uh, he collared and followed them for decades and he knew them by name and he figured out all of this stuff about their lifestyle and like why they eat what they eat what time of year because of what's in the bark and like all he did all this cool observational and also like biochemical research to figure out porcupines and it's just a great book and it's so interesting and i wrote him a letter and i was like this was the i actually for the paper we're talking about the um dermatophyte the ringworm paper I had the book and I was going to do the like classic, like look up the five things I need from this book and then, you know, put it on the shelf. And I just like happened to read the first page. And then I was actually going to a conference and I just read the whole book. Like that's all I did the whole day. I read the whole book. Like I didn't like, I didn't go to bed. Like I, I slept like four hours because I like couldn't put it down. So I read it like twice on the way out and the way back. Um, oh, that's awesome. And he wrote me back right away, my email. And he's just awesome. And oh, nice. uh, it's a great book uh, and it's really fun to meet someone who's, you know, the, so he's like the world's expert on porcupines. Oh, cool. Um, so buy that book. Yeah, nice. We can definitely put a link to that in the show notes if people want to mm. check it out. David, you and I are based in New England. And so do we feel like this is still kind of isolated to like the Northeast region around us? Or yeah, we haven't seen it anywhere else in the U.S. at this point. I haven't heard anything and I have like a loose, yeah, I uh, have like time for some self-shaming. Um, I have a giant retrospective study of like all the porcupine diagnoses um, from like a lot of people, basically like the Northern border states of the United States and Canada that I have almost done. Um, but the pandemic hit and everything went pluey. So it should have been done, but anyway, um, so like we, you know, kind of people who do wildlife diagnostics talk a bit. Um, I haven't heard anyone else uh, say anything and I, I should probably reach out. That'd probably be a good idea once, but once the, once I get my stupid head around finishing up that manuscript, I'll send it out and I'll, I will definitely poke for any new things. Cause this came into porcupines after the retrospective was pulled together, even the ones in Canada. So it's like, ah, we're like, a, you know, the retrospective is a little bit early for to include it because right now I think it probably might be one of the largest impacts on porcupine health of the Northeast. Mm. Yeah, super interesting. I'm really, I don't want to say I'm excited to see where it goes, but I'm really interested to to see what happens with this whole story. I think it's okay to say. I mean, it's my favorite virus. If that's <laughs> any, yeah, if that makes you feel any more normal. <laughs> Not that pathologists make people feel normal, but yeah. I hear ya. Yeah. And my personal experience with adenoviruses is primarily in reptiles, which we see, mm -hmm. we see it a lot, you know, especially in like pet reptiles, like bearded dragons right. are kind of like the poster children for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Cause it's my, you know, my understanding of it until now was that it was very, like we were talking about before, very species specific. And now with this one, it seems like it is not as much. So that's really interesting. The, the degenerate adenovirus PCR, um, the the one that catches them all, is uh, from a paper by Wellahan, which describes 
finding six new adenoviruses in lizards. And so that's sort of the canonical how to find them. So yeah, the that the just like you're talking about the reptile adenovirus um, work has led to the our ability to detect and describe these other adenoviruses. Oh, cool. That's I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for filling us in. This has been really, really interesting and you're hilarious to talk to. So I'm really excited to come up to UNH hopefully in a couple months and spend some time actually with you in the lab and um, see what a real pathologist does. <laughs> oh, I'll have to dig up a real pathologist for you. Then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really excited for that. And we'll have, I mean, not that I'm ever cheering for disease, but you know, I don't think it's going away. So I think there'll be lots of fun stories along the year. So hopefully we can chat when they happen. The New Hampshire Veterinary Diagnostic Lab is a really cool place. And uh, if you're looking for a job, we're actually adding a pathologist, which is really exciting. Um, so we're gonna have four pathologists. Uh, so if you're a pathologist and you're interested in wildlife disease or or haven't and aren't, uh, we do a lot of standard you know, domesticated animal pathology as well. So uh, look us up. And if you're in the neighborhood and COVID's over, come visit. It's a really cool lab. Um, but before then, you know, don't come visit because everyone's gross. Yeah. Yep. You heard that straight from a pathologist. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.